Today, I would like to welcome one of the rising stars in UK coaching, former assistant coach of the Great Britain under 20s and now director of the Student Athlete Network. I'd like to welcome coach Josh Burrington. Hi, Tony. Thanks for having me. Hi, coach. Um, great to have you on. A um, lot to get into today, especially, you know, your, your background and, um, you know, where you were learning your philosophy from. You've worked with a lot of um, high level coaches. So let's talk about firstly about, you know, where you, you know, were first introduced to basketball and um, how that, you know, came about to like give you this, this desire to become a coach. Yeah, so I'm, I'm from Milton Keynes originally. Um, uh, when I was growing up, the MK Lions, who are obviously now the London Lions, were in town. And when I went to secondary school, uh, Nigel Lloyd, who was player coach of the Lions at the time, um, was actually working in my school a couple of days a week, you know, doing some basketball after school and that type of stuff. So, yeah, I started playing in year eight, which was, you know, my first year of secondary school. Um, kind of we, a group of us started to play quite often. Obviously, you know, it was really kind of inspiring to have Nigel there. Um, yeah, and I would say towards the end of that first year, we all kind of got put forward for some county trials, which we all made the team. Then we went to some regional trials, um, and I was the only one from my school who didn't make it. So I actually think it was I think it was Matt Johnson who picked the team. So so <laughs> thanks, Matt. Um, yeah. So that at that point, I was like I was playing all sports. So I was playing like rugby to a to a decent level. So I kind of decided that summer that you know I was pretty annoyed that I didn't make the team. So I kind of quit all the other sports I was playing. Um, I don't think my dad's never forgiven me for quitting rugby. But um, yeah, so I kind of decided to focus on basketball from that point forward. Uh, that summer, I went to uh, Steve Bucknell's camp down in London, which was down in Crystal Palace, which was which was awesome. And that kind of was my first experience of basketball Such outside sports, of Milton Keynes. Yeah, 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 it was an awesome camp. You know, like Dean Smith was there, they had Bobby Kremins there. Like, you know, it was really Kevin Cadle was there. It was, it was, you know, really amazing camp. And, and that kind of really inspired me. You know, they gave like a lot of, a lot of speeches every day after lunch, there'd be like a different guest speaker. And, you know, a lot of it was about kind of working hard and committing yourself. I think to I was one of them. Okay. I, I, was, um, <laughs> I think I may have been one. Of, I certainly was there on the week of, D, of Dean Smith on one of them. Yeah. So, okay yeah. awesome yeah yeah so that kind of really kind of inspired me to be honest and then obviously went back to to my school we yeah we had a good good school team like every year we were kind of um you know at the national final level kind of we used to go up they used to have like a final eights competition that we used to go up to i think it was up in barrow um we always used to lose to ellesmere port uh mike burton school um but yeah we did pretty well in that and then we entered national league under 15 um and yeah we our first year, I think we made the the semi-final, lost in the semi-final, just as a school team. You know, I think we had one or two guys from other schools, but pretty much the core of our team was was just a school team. Sure. Um, yeah, then after year 11, uh, you know, the academy system back then wasn't what it is now, but there was an academy uh, just down the road for me in Northampton at Martin College. So, yeah, I joined Martin College, obviously, where I played for, you know, John Collins and, and Mark Dunning, two, two coaching legends. Just 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 go back to the school situation. Two, mm -hmm. uh, a couple of questions. First of all, were you aware of Nigel's, like, playing background? Did you know much about yeah. him as a player? Um, um, or, 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 you know, you knew that, obviously, he was the Lions coach. Um, mm -hmm. And then secondly... You know, were you going regularly to watch the Lions play? Yeah, so I think yeah. Over time, we started to realize you know how big the deal it was to have Nigel. Um, obviously, he was he was still playing at the time, so 
you know, our practice were, were great. Like we would do a lot, you know, a lot of fun, fundamental stuff, but we would also play a lot. Um, our school gym had like a, you know, a big show court, but then three cross courts. So if there was like a group of us, we just play like three on three or four on four cross court and, and Nigel would, would play with us. So kind of all the stuff that he's telling us to do, he's then doing. Um, and you know, if anyone that knows Nigel knows he likes to talk a lot when he's playing. Um, so we were just kind of learning that way, you know, like if you couldn't shoot, he would tell the guy guarding you not to play you. Like if you couldn't go right, he would tell the guy guarding you to force you right and all this type of thing. And, and quickly we just kind of, you know, you start to develop a basketball IQ. Um, and obviously just, yeah, watching Nigel and seeing kind of the level of player he was, was, you know, was, was a big inspiration for all of us. We try and, you know, mimic things that he was doing. Um, and yeah, we used to used to go to watch the Lions quite a lot. Uh, we actually we had a deal with Vince where, where basically they used to play at, at Bletchley Leisure Centre on one of the, the roll up floors. Sure. Um, so we had a deal with Vince where Vince would let us in the game for free. I think it was like five pounds, but Vince would let us in for free um, as long as we would roll up the floor for him at the end. Okay. And um, the reason we would do that is because you know, they were sponsored by Domino's Pizza. So we'd get a free Domino's Pizza after the game. But also once the floor was rolled up, we could play three on three. On, on the court so we would just yeah we'd roll up the floor we'd get some pizza we'd play three on three yeah it was, it was good and then we also you know because of the connections with Nigel we started going to the road games as well like so we travel on the bus with the team and you know as we got a little bit older we'd, we'd practice with them as well so yeah it was it was great experience growing up yeah I mean um, most of us that have been in the BBL for quite a long time remember Bletchley and actually <laughs> was one of the first people to have a Terra, Terraflex I think it was called Terraflex yeah I think something and, like that, uh, yeah um you know i mean really i think he might have been one of the few clubs to actually have it um outside of the the, the one that was getting pushed around uh, by the league maybe for some mm -hmm. some tv type situation um but i also remembered that it was always badly put together and it would come <laughs> it would come loose and the players would go crazy yeah. at that time but listen that's yeah. uh that's a that's a really good story and my last yeah. point well, i want to make just for a lot of the younger coaches that are listening um this is the problem with our with basketball in this country we really have a very poor historical understanding and um someone like nigel i, I don't think people really understand nigel lloyd wouldn't be um playing in the bbl if he came here now he'd be playing in the euro league he was that good um yeah you know he was absolutely one of the best players to have played in our country um mm -hmm. a guy that was you know right from the time he arrived here um so i mean yeah it's it's crazy that you're you're scrimmaging and playing with him that's uh that's great that's a yeah. great story so yeah. you obviously then move on to to molten um you know this is the molten college you know that was at that time a you know like you said one of the premier academies in the country and probably down to the fact that like you said there were two legends coaching you know coach john collins and coach mark dunning um talk to me about that uh process and and what that actually meant to you um did you start to get a feel that there could be coaching or you were just still loving the game of basketball from a player's perspective yeah, I think I was I was still still looking at it from a player's perspective. You know, we kind of had like lofty ambitions at, at that stage, as as most teenagers do. Um, you know, I think as you get a little bit older and you kind of get a bit wiser, you kind of understand your level a little bit more as a player. Sure. Um, but yeah, at that point, I was still, you know, still all focused on playing. Had aspirations to try and play in the states after Moulton. Um, 
but yeah, it was, you know, we, John actually did, um, as part of the, the basketball academy at Martin, we did our level one and two coaching. So, you know, that wasn't something I necessarily utilized at the time, but kind of later on when I began coaching, it was, uh, you know, it was a big deal because obviously I was, I didn't have to go through the qualifications, you know, when that first coaching opportunity came up, I already, already had those qualifications there. So, yeah, I mean, I wasn't really thinking on coaching. I was still, still trying to be a player. Um, but you obviously, you know, subconsciously just kind of taken in so much from those guys at that stage, which obviously when I began coaching, started to use a lot of the things that, that they were doing. Okay. So um, a very fundamental um, academy, you know, you must have been taught the, the game there. That, you know, obviously that we'll come back to that and see if that helped you shape some of your philosophy. What was your, what was your next stop after, after Moulton? Yeah, so after Martin, I went to the States. Um, I played at a junior college out there for two years, which was, you know, a great experience. Um, you know, again, the, the academy system back then wasn't anywhere close to what it is now. So probably, you know, looking back, I probably wasn't ready for the, the level of competition in the States. I just hadn't really been been exposed to it. You know, we played we played under 18s and, you know, a couple of academy games, there was no, no EABL or anything like that. So probably just not, from a player perspective, not, particularly ready for that but you know it was a good experience nonetheless um again ended up playing for for a great coach so we had a, a coaching change um after my first season and the new coach that came in was a guy that had, had played and coached at Princeton um he's a guy called Howard Levy he's I think he's still the all-time leading field goal percentage uh, shooter at Princeton like something ridiculous like 66 percent or something he's 610 so you know he shouldn't be missing layups but um yeah so that was that was a great experience he kind of brought that that Princeton style of play in which you know for me um someone who was you know had some physical limitations but probably had like a decent basketball IQ and, and could shoot a little bit um that that style of game really suited me um, sure. and we even had you know the the legendary Princeton coach Pete Carrill used to used to come to our practices wow. and yeah and again at the time I you know it's just like an old guy on the side I didn't know who he was I didn't know oh. that he was you know an assistant coach for the Kings or the guy that kind of you know led Princeton to all those great great uh, great achievements so yeah looking back now that was an amazing experience to have him there as well um but yeah yeah unfortunately um week after my sophomore year I tore my ACL playing playing pickup at a YMCA <laughs> um yeah so I kind of yeah my plan was to to kind of come home have the surgery and then go back out I was supposed to go to uh, Gettysburg College which was a, a D3 school in Pennsylvania sure. um again a connection through my coach it was being coached by uh, George Petrie who was the brother of Jeff Petrie who was uh the president of basketball operations at the Kings yeah. um, at the time, Princeton guy. So yeah, I was going to, I was going to go, go to Gettysburg, but I came home, kind of had the surgery and was at home for a couple of months. And, you know, the way I am, I just thought I can't sit around for a whole year. So I, um, yeah, I'd done, I'd done UCAS as kind of a backup option if I didn't have any options after JUCO. And uh, yeah, I'd, I'd applied to Northumbria. So I thought, okay, I'll, you know, I'll go to Northumbria, I'll do a year up there. You know, if I'm enjoying it, I'll stay. If not, I'd look to go back to the States. Um, but yeah, I went to Newcastle, kind of, yeah, loved it and um, decided to stay. And that was actually where I where I first went into coaching because I because I tore my ACL, I couldn't play. Um, and Greg Modzaleski was the coach at the time. Uh, he kind of said to me, um, you know, we can't give you any scholarship money because you're not going to play, but we can give you some money if you coach the second team. So I was like, yeah, sure, why not? Awesome. And uh, were you... 
was there any kind of involvement with the Eagles at that stage? Because obviously Northumbria traditionally is a Newcastle mm -hmm. Eagles um, kind of affiliate university. Yeah. Was there any involvement or you were just kind of going to games and hanging around? Yeah, we would. I mean, we would. I'm trying to think. Yeah, we'd, we'd like we practice against them sometimes, like scrimmage against them. Um, you know, if I, I, I used to stay out there in the summers, so, you know, kind of they would start preseason earlier than we would. So I would, you know, do some pra couple preseason practices with them. And there was a link, yeah, a couple of, um, they had the likes of like Jamie Glenn and Aaron Nielsen kind of on the end of their bench that would sometimes come down and play with us as well. Sure. Yeah, there, yeah, so there was there was a connection there for sure, yeah. Okay. Um, so you actually, you, you became, am I right in thinking you became the head coach of the women's team at Northumbria? Yes, correct. So yeah, I obviously coached the coached the second team at Northumbria for the whole time. You know, I, I went back to playing kind of the end of my first year, played the last two years, but then also was you know, the whole time was kind of coached the second team. And you know, if the games clashed, I, I would go and play. Um, so whoever you know, my flatmate at the time would would be a player coach for the second team, and I would uh, I would uh, yeah go and play. So. But yeah, when I graduate, because the the Eagles kind of managed the the relationship with the university. Um, so I was actually employed by the Eagles to coach the second team. Right. Um, so I got to know like Deirdre Hayes, who was coached the women's team at the time. And sure. um, after my first year of university, I I went back home uh, and then did my level three course with with John and, and with Coach Dunning. Um, yeah, I did that after my first year of university. And then obviously I had to go back up and kind of be assessed for my for the season, for the games, um, which Deirdre Hayes actually did did the assessment for me for those, for that time. Um, so yeah, I kind of got to know Deirdre and then obviously when I, when I graduated uni, it just so happened that Deirdre was deciding to step down from coaching the women's team to, you know, to focus on our work with the Eagles. So yeah, they, they kind of offered me that job and I kind of took it straight away. Right. And so this is your first coaching stop. Um, is there still mm -hmm. at this moment, are you starting to like think, Hey, this is something I'm really good at. Um, I could, you know, I could, I could definitely further myself into it or it was that you just love, loved the game of basketball. You wanted to be involved. That's my first question. Yeah. And then mm -hmm. secondly, you know, take us back to that, that early, those early coaching moments. Cause now mm -hmm. you've got, you got some really interesting, you know, like you've got Coach Dunning and um, Coach Collins with their, you know, really very, very fundamentally, um, you know, driven coaches. You've got Nigel, and then you've got the Princeton coach, you know, who, mm -hmm. or, you know, you've got all these 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 aspects. What did you start taking, you know, in your philosophy first of all? Yeah, so I think for the first question, I kind of. My, my last year of university um, is when, when Mark Stuttel took over the, the team full-time. Um, and Mark is, you know, one of my best friends. And, um, you know, that kind of time, I was kind of losing the passion for playing a little bit. And kind of, you know, I, I was very aware of my level. I knew that I wasn't going to have a career as a professional. So I was kind of, yeah, I, was my, I would say my last year of university, I was, I was starting to think about coaching a bit more. And I, I knew that's kind of what I wanted to do um, moving forward. So... Yeah, I would, I would say, yeah, around that time is when I started to realise that, you know, this, this is something that I want to do, um, you know, and I, I knew that I kind of, the Eagles kind of employed community coaches at the time, and I was kind of thinking that I would, would go down that route, um, obviously with the women's job opening up, that was, yeah, that was great. Um, and then, yeah, in terms of, yeah, in terms of how I was kind of shaping my philosophy at that stage and, and how I was coaching, yeah, it was just, it was all based on coaches that I played for, just kind of taking, taking bits from each one and, 
and one thing that I think is really important is, you know, not to like, yeah, steal things and stuff, but not to try and imitate and stuff like that. Like, you know, I was, I was really kind of a big fan of like the Princeton way of playing, which, you know, people always talk about the Princeton offense, but for me, it, you know, it's a lot more than that. It, it's, it's a, it's a whole style of play, which well, is obviously, you know, based on. So explain, explain that, um, what your, you know, how you interpret that and, mm -hmm. and the key components of that, that style of play. Yeah. Well, I think obviously Princeton typically were not the most physically gifted teams, but obviously had, you know, high IQ, high skill level. So it, it's all predicated around trying to limit the possessions in the game because they'd always get killed on the boards. Control, yeah. So, yeah, so it's about, you know, controlling controlling the amount of possessions in the game, kind of playing a very, very patient and, and deliberate offense. Um, obviously, they have a 35 second clock, so they can they can do that more than we can. Um, yeah, and if you if you kind of break it down, it's like yeah, about patience on offense, and they're looking for layups and three point shots, which obviously now when the game's driven by all the analytics, that's what everyone's talking about. Kind of that sprawl ball, we want threes and layups. The mid range is bad, blah blah blah. So you know, Princeton were already kind of doing this stuff mm. back in the day, and then and then defensively, it was more I guess more of kind of a pack line defense. So. Yeah. So, you know, put pressure on the ball so you don't give up a three-point shot. But, you know, the guys off the ball, were, you know, they're, they're not denying, they're playing open, they're ready to help. And again, it was all about, you know, the opposite of what we wanted on offense was we're not giving up any threes and we're not giving up any layups. We want to force everyone into tough, contested two-point shots. Mm. So that was kind of, and again, you know, that's kind of defensively what, what a lot of teams do do nowadays. So For sure, yeah. Uh, my only question to that is, you know, mm -hmm. the game obviously is is built around, you know, basically transition now. I mean, there's a yeah. number of aspects, three-point line and transition. So how do you, or at this time, were you stressing transition? Because, you know, obviously in Princeton's, you know, kind of rules are that they they want the pace of the game to be yeah. withheld so that the, the game isn't up and down and there, yeah. there are less possessions in the game. So what were your yeah, thoughts sure. on, on, on transition at the time? Yeah, and this is what I'm saying. It's important not to just try and imitate because... I kind of, you know, some big differences. The first one is the clock. You know, you don't have a 35 second clock to play with. Um, and also I think, you know, it's a it's a pretty conservative way to play. You're almost playing, at, you know, not to lose as opposed to playing to win. So, and it's, you know, a lot of, a lot of damage limitations. So, you know, especially when you're trying to, you know, help guys improve, you know, you need to put them in positions where they've got to make decisions, you know, accept that they're going to make mistakes. So that's right. I probably took, um, you know, the defensive philosophy, I think I took more so. Um, and then it was just a lot of the details on offense about, you know, uh, you know, the spacing, you know, how to properly set your man up for a backdoor cut, like these type of things, the type of shots we want to get on offense. Um, but in terms of like pace of the game, yeah, I think very much so. We'll, we'll always want to try and play in transition if, if you've got the team to do it. Mm, interesting stuff because um like you said um one point i just want to raise is that um you can go back you can go and watch a lot of the videos on how to teach you know the princeton offense but you know you've actually been within assist within you know someone that was there and really understood the timing the spacing you know the reads off the cut um, and probably, if I'm not mistaken, some of the drill mythology that actually built a yeah. lot up, which, you know, no offense, but you can't get in a 60 minute video. You just can't, you know, no. you, mm -hmm. that's, mm -hmm. a, that's months and years of experience. So, uh, I mean, that's an incredible uh, aspect you got. And, uh, you know, I, I, I would be very interested to see you put that on the floor 
um, or your interpretation, you know, on, mm -hmm. on, a, on a regular basis. Um, let's, let's slightly move on, you know, so you, you're doing this, uh, at Northumbria, um, yeah. you're finishing up your studies or you actually had finished your studies when I was coaching the women's team. Yeah. When you were coaching the women's team. Yeah. So I, I graduated the year I graduated in, in 2012 is when I, when I took over the women's team. Yeah. Right. And so what was the, at the, at the end of 2024, the 2014 season, what was that, mm -hmm. um, how did you end up jumping to Charnwood and, and the riders situation? Yeah. So when I, when I was obviously coaching the women's team, uh, Matt Harbour was coaching the, the women's team at Loughborough. So we had, yeah, we had like quite a lot of battles with them. It, I mean, our, my first year at Northumbria was really a rebuilding year. So obviously Deirdre had stepped down and she'd been the coach there for a long time. And, you know, a lot of the local players um, also decided to, to stop playing as well um so it was kind of a really rebuilding year we had we had kind of three full-time players that were on scholarship you know the team was recruited before I got there um you know we had three you know really good players that were on scholarship and then they were kind of the only students and then we had a couple of girls that came in and played on, on the weekend so I used to spend like my Monday and Tuesday like you know chasing people around the uni to try and make sure we had five for the Bucks game on the Wednesday um yeah, so it's a really real building year, but we played, we had some some good battles with Loughborough. Uh, and then Matt Harbour kind of spoke to me about, you know, possibly of a job at, at Loughborough at the end of that first year. Um, but I was kind of, you know, I was loving life in Newcastle. I was enjoying the job and I kind of wanted to go at being able to recruit a team myself and kind of to build the build the women's program there. So, yeah, the second year we we, we had a few more players. Um, we, we'd done OK in the first year. We, we made the uh, National Cup final um lost to, wow. to Sheffield in that and then in the in the second year um we had a really good season so we won we won bucks um you know we we won a real awesome. a real barn burner against Durham in the final I think it was like 50 to 45 <laughs> yeah we had like uh our power forward at the time was like really our, the glue to our team and and we found out just for the game she wasn't gonna be able to play so we played the game with like you know we had Tiani Clark who's obviously now at Seven Oaks who's really good um, we had a girl called Leola Spotwood and the American who's really good, Diana Boynova. And then um, we had a netball player running the point. Uh, we also had uh, Sarah Thompson from Scotland, who, who was kind of a young point guard who, who played well. Uh, yeah, so we won that, won Bucks. Uh, we also won the National Cup that year. After making the final the first year, we won it wow. on, a, on a buzzer beater from Leola Spotwood. Um, some people will say it was a travel, but, you know, I'll say she got fouled first. Um, yeah, we, we had the tied game against Cardiff, seven seconds to go, ball on the side and, and managed to get a layup for Leola, which was, you know, kind of you know, amazing experience. Um, yeah, and then after that second year again, I mean, I think at, at Newcastle, I was coaching the women's team, but I was also doing a lot of work in the community. Um, and what what Leicester offered me was a job to kind of coach full time without the community stuff. Um, and I obviously knew, I knew Russell Levinston from when I was a kid um obviously being in Milton Keynes he was kind of Vince's right hand man at the time so sure. yeah so I kind of yeah I took the opportunity to go to Leicester and and take the Charmer job that's awesome um so are you now you go to Charnwood and I'm am I assuming there was an academy there or it, it, it you started yeah. the academy no it was already there it was previously called Burley College I think that's right um I think yeah. I think Rob might have been the coach initially, and then uh, Barry Lamble did it for a little bit. I think Dave Greenaway did it for a little bit, and I think the year before I got there, Mark Jaron was doing it. But Mark was also doing the Loughborough job 
so he and, and assisted in Rob with the riders. So Rob was kind of really stretched. So I was I was the first coach to go in there full time, just just focus on the academy. Um, and it just happened around that time they'd kind of started to recruit in some talented players, you know, the likes of Josh McSwiggan. So it was kind of a you know really good time to to go in. Right. And then you, at this moment, now you're going from the women's game, which, you know, you can, you know, be much, much more, you know, ball control and, you know, yeah. playing in a certain, a different style, um, which mm-hmm. you obviously was successful at doing. Now you're going to Charmwood. Are you, did you change your, your, some of your philosophy or the way you coached or what, what, what's happening at this time from you as a, as a coach? Yeah, I think, I think so. I think, the women's game is probably more of a horizontal game and the men's game is more of a vertical game, you know, and it's um, my, my, I definitely agree with the fact that as a coach in the women's game, you can have, you can have a lot more control um, of, of what's going on on the floor. Um, but yeah, so I think it wasn't so much the kind of switching between genders as much as it was the the context of what it was, you know, the effect of the university team we were trying to win. You know, we're playing at the top top level of, uh, you know, of, of course, always trying to develop the players, but, you know, we're trying to win. Whereas the, the main goal at Charmwood was always to to help those kids to prepare them for the next level, whatever, whatever that is for them. So I think that was that was probably more so the the adjustment in philosophy. Um, so talk, uh, talk to me, you, you obviously, you know, it's, a, 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 an incredible situation at Leicester. Um, mm-hmm. you know, this whole rider situation, um, is growing and growing and growing. So you, you're involved with the BBL team, um, yep. you're linked into Loughborough. Um, talk to me a little bit about that and then talk to me about some of the quick, you know, successes of, of Charmwood and, and the type of players that you, that you coach there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think, you know, the, the infrastructure at, at Loughborough and at Charmwood and with the riders is really good. Um, you know, attempt to have great facilities there. Obviously, everything's it's a pretty small town, Loughborough, so everything's pretty easy to get around. And, you know, they have that pathway from the, the academy to the university to, to the riders, and it's all kind of interlinked in, in some way. Um, so, yeah, that was great. Just I think just being around other like-minded coaches as well was, was really good. Um, mm. So there was a lot of, like, you know, uh, Matt Harbour was there, Mark Jarum, uh, Crew Mesh was the coach of the women at Charmwood. There was a lot of coaches do it around straight away, which is good. Um, and then I think working with the BBL team was great. You know, Rob kind of welcomed me in straight away and it was it was great to work with Rob. Um, you know, kind of seeing, that was kind of my first kind of inside look at, at the professional game as well and kind of seeing how how that how that works. Um, but yeah, I think Charmwood stuff was really good. You know, we, you know, I went in my first year and, and obviously the kids were already there. We had some kind of third year kids. Um, and I think, you know, some of our talented players kind of a bit older, it's kind of, couldn't have they're pretty kind of set in their ways you know some of them it was, it was difficult to have much of an impact and kind of really implement what I wanted to do with them um in that first year um just trying to change everything around the culture kind of the you know and obviously the kids were all of a sudden because they had a full-time coach they were they were getting more more basketball so it's kind of managing that and 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 making sure the schedules were right and you know the intensity of everything we're doing is good and you know you don't want the guys that you know they they're not giving you hundred percent in practice, but then they're in the gym getting extra shots up in the morning. It's like, well, no, like the first is you've got to bring it in practice and then everything else is kind of additional. So kind of getting the kids to understand things like that was, was, a, was a challenge and trying to get that, you know, that quality over quantity. Um, but yeah, then I think obviously moving into the second year again, was able to, to recruit some players in and kind of mold, mold the players a little bit more, I think, um, you know, we had that second year, we, we won the EABL. We had, uh, we had a good team and that we, 
I would say we were probably the fourth or fifth best team. I think at that time the EABL was kind of at its at its peak, um, kind of the mid 20, 20 teens. Um, was the EABL was kind of really strong. Um, Myasco that first year, Myasco had beaten us like six times. Um, so yeah, and then obviously we we kind of went on a great run. We had three three third year kids. So Andre Arasol, who, who's now playing down at Solent. Um, and two kids from Gibraltar, Tom, Tom Yomi and Tim Faber, who were kind of great leaders for our team. Um, and they really, you know, it was my second year with them. Um, they were really able to kind of, you know, be the, the coaches on the floor and, and make sure that our philosophy and our cultures were getting, getting through to the rest of the team. Um, so, yeah, that was a great, great memories. Really, really enjoyed coaching that group, uh, coaching that group of players. And then, yeah, and then obviously it was there. My, my final year was a third year. Uh, again, we had really talented team, um, you know, probably, yeah, definitely more talented than, than the team that when we won it in my second year, mm-hmm. um, but probably didn't go through much adversity in the year because we were just kind of took the momentum from winning it the year before. And, um, you know, we had really talented offensive team. It was, you know, probably the most the most talented offensive team I've coached. Um, yeah, subsequently, we, we kind of came up short against uh, Bark and Abbey at the end. And I think, you know, the main reason is we kind of, we hadn't faced a team, you know, Bark and Abbey were, you know, sure. an incredible team that year. Um, you know, all the guys now doing really well in the States. And I think probably we hadn't gone through much adversity in that season. Um, and I think looking back, kind of the, the, the big thing I took away from that season was, probably could have created some of that myself, you know, probably could have shaken things up a little bit to help prepare the guys a little bit more. Um, But no, again, yeah, great memories. And and I think the biggest thing, like I said, is just, you know, helping the guys move on to their next step and and trying to, trying to prepare them for that next step. So, you know, to see the guys now, uh, obviously it's, it's been, I think three years since I left there. So see the guys now, some obviously playing professionally in the BBL or NBL, and then also the guys that, you know, are not playing, but are doing well in like in, uh, in the working world, you know, actually, Mm. One of uh, one of my former players from Charmwood actually does, you know, a lot of kind of graphic design work and stuff for me at the moment. So that's like a really cool story. Awesome. Um, yeah. So just see, just seeing them, just seeing them do well is, it's, it's, yeah, it's pleasing. Um, two questions that come out of the riders Charmwood situation. The first is, um, you, you know, what what was changing from your philosophy because now you're 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 coaching full time, full full time, um, yeah. with some pretty good players. You're doing the BBL stuff. Are you changing as a coach at this moment? Are you seeing ways to improve your coaching um, on the floor on a daily basis? Um, were some of the things that hit you just because you know, like you you might coach three times a week before, and now you're coaching every day, potentially two or three times a day. What were what were yeah. some of those factors? Yeah, I think I think that was a big one, being able to get on the floor more and, you know, especially a lot more individual workouts and stuff. You know, when I was at Northumbria, it was, it was primarily just team practice. We'd have like um, one morning practice every week, which was kind of a fundamental practice. But, you know, we only had two practices in a week, so team, two team practices. So we kind of had to utilize those for team stuff. So I think it was starting to work a lot more on on the individual development of the players, which was big. Um, and I think... <laughs> Well, from, from my experience, I don't know if other people feel the same, but I think before you start coaching, you know, I, I wasn't the greatest player, but I felt like I had a pretty, pretty high basketball IQ and I could probably, you know, solve problems in the game and stuff like that. You kind of think, oh, it's easy. You know, I'll just identify the problem. I'll tell the guys what to do and, and we'll be good. Um, obviously, as you start coaching, you quickly understand how much you don't know. Mm. Um, and I would say that I was definitely kind of going through that at luck with thing, kind of taking a lot more information. And I think probably... When you get to the other side of that, you'll probably get to a stage in your coaching career where 
you know you've you've seen a lot and you've done a lot and you've kind of set in your philosophy and, and and what you want to do but yeah at this stage I was kind of learning a lot taking a lot in um you know again kind of stealing bits from from the other coaches in the program you know stealing bits from Rob stealing bits from from Matt Harbour you know that type of stuff but again it was just is a case of you know making sure that you don't just you know imitate and you actually kind of understand what you're what you're what you're watching and then try to implement that in in the right context with your team I've got to, I've got another question in a minute, but firstly, um, what what was the thing that you took for or things you took away from working with Rob um, and seeing how he works with uh, with the professional team? Was it yeah. like motivational? Was it on practice? Was it in the locker room? What what were some mm -hmm. of the things you you looked at there? Yeah, I mean, I think obviously working with the academy kids, it was kind of like pedal to the metal all the time, like go hard every day. Whereas one thing that Rob gets very, he gets it right with the pros is, is when to push them, when to kind of, you know, have a lighter practice and that type of thing. Um, but I think probably the biggest thing uh, was just Rob's ability to motivate the team. Um, you know, I, I've, since I've been watching the riders, I've never kind of seen a game where, you know, the players don't look locked in or they're not ready to go. You know, they might lose a game because they have a bad shooting night, but, you know, they're not, they're always going to be ready to go. And I think that was, that was probably the most impressive thing. I mean, you know, the BBL schedule can be, can be rough. Um, so we're playing like a, you know, a life and death game against Newcastle at home on a Saturday night that we've been preparing a week for. And then we're going up to Manchester on the Sunday to play in a cold gym and, and we're doing the scout on the bus and, you know, Rob's ability to get, you know, the guys up for that game as just as much as they were up for the, for the Saturday game at home in front of a packed house was, was probably, I would say the most impressive thing. And mm. yeah, you'll see like a Leicester team, they'll always, you know, they'll always be locked in, you know, they're not, they're not going to have a game off, you know, said they might have a bad shooting night, but they're always going to be ready to go. Interesting. That's great stuff. Um, okay. So from uh, Charnwood, um, what was it that, um, I mean, you're coaching, sorry, you're coaching the under twenties at this time, uh, GB yes. under twenties. Um, talk mm -hmm. to me a little bit about that, the international, um, you know, what, what that was about, how you, you know, how did that come about? Um, mm -hmm. So what, what was the process there to be on the under twenties as an assistant coach? Yeah. So I was actually um, assistant coach with the England under 16 girls before that. Um, I started that when I was when I was coaching the women at Northumbria. Um, yeah, we had had some really good teams. We, we got promoted with the 98 generation. So the likes of Savannah Wilkinson, uh, Janelle Grant, Gabby, all, all those girls that are now kind of graduating college and, and hopefully will we'll make up our, our senior national team. Yeah, we had a great, great tournament with those guys. We unfortunately ran into to Germany who had the uh, Satu Sabali on the team who was she's just been drafted number two in the WNBA so she was kind of the difference in the game um but yeah it was great great experience there and then yeah I, I actually did two years with the with the under 16 girls so one in uh division b we got promoted and then one in division a um which was which was a little a little more difficult we kind of most of the players had kind of moved up to the under 18s um and we had some really talented we had like holly winterburn was on the team but she was playing a year young um, Hannah Jump, who's a girl, uh, American girl with English passport playing at Stanford. She was on the team, but I think she was, yeah, two or three years young. Um, so again, hopefully girls that we'll see on the senior national team soon. Um, but yeah, it was, was a tough tournament, Division A, big step up. Um, and I was actually planning to take a year off from, from national teams after that. And, and that was the year that we, we won the EABL. Um, so I got a phone call from Andreas kind of asking if I would be interested. And of course, I you know jumped at the opportunity. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how it came about. The first year was with, with James and Andreas in Greece. Um, 
the I think it was a 96 and 97 generation. Um, yeah, great tournament in Greece. We, we, uh, we had Greece in our group and I think I knew it was a big step up. You know, my first role was to, was to scout Greece. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a big step up when you were kind of scout, uh, scouting guys off NBA draft.net and the game, the game they sent me to watch was uh, Greece against USA in Greece in the under 19 world cup semifinal. Okay. Um, and, and yeah, and Greece should have won. They just missed a bunch of free throws, but yeah, so that was kind of a bit of a wow moment for me. I was like, okay, this is, this is serious stuff now, you know? Um, yeah. So we, we unfortunately lost to Croatia in the quarterfinals um, of that tournament. We, we made it through the group stages. We kept, you know, Greece won the group. We came second, won all the other games. Um, but we, yeah, we didn't make it. We, we lost to Croatia in the quarterfinal. Um, then the following year, obviously still in Division B, um, James took the under GP under 16s head coaching job. So Lloyd Gardner came in to replace James. Um, so it was me, me, Lloyd, and Andreas. Um, and that that was the year we got promoted out of Division B. So again, you know, typical kind of short preparation window. Um, I, I think we played one tournament before that in in Portugal. Um, where we we lost pretty badly to Finland and to Portugal, but but beat Belarus and yeah we, we were a little concerned going into the tournament. Um, we kind of our group obviously the top two go through in the group and we kind of looked at it as you know it, it's going to be us and Russia, um, but we lost we lost the first game to the Netherlands on the opening day again just just not not prepared at that stage to to be ready for the tournament. Um, so. Yeah, we had a kind of a do or die game the next day with Russia, which we ended up winning against Russia. And then the third day, we needed uh, Russia to beat the Netherlands by a certain amount or the Netherlands to beat Russia by a certain amount for us to, to go through. Sure. Fortunately, um, yeah, the rumour was that the Russian coach didn't let his team eat dinner after we beat them. So they were they were pretty fired up. Um, and they, yeah, they beat, I think they beat uh, Holland by about 16. Um, yeah, so we, it was kind of, our destiny was back in our hands. Um, yeah, we went through. We, we beat. Uh, who we beat? We beat Poland in the quarterfinals. Um, lost again to Croatia to, for the in the semifinals, but managed to beat Russia for a second time, in, in a lot more convincingly this time for the you know for the promotion. And that was that was a really good team. And I think one of the one of the things that was really pleasing is uh, eleven of the twelve guys on that team had had been through EABL academies. So there was, yeah, there was Carl Wheatall, who was, who was obviously, you know, played his basketball in Italy, but there was, yeah, there was six Barkin Abbey guys, two Charmwood guys, uh, Myersco, one guy from Myersco, one guy from Itchin and uh, Danny Evans from Leeds. So, mm-hmm. you know, 11 of the 12 guys and also 11 of the 12 guys either playing or, or going to play in the States as well. Mm, that's, that's a great point. I mean, um, mm-hmm. Neil and Lloyd um, both mentioned that, you know, that the EABL, EABL process has, you know, been successful. It's been one of the yeah. actual things that have gone well in basketball in, in a structural, although there are a number of yeah. still critics of it. Um, okay, so from this moment in Charmwood, what was the, what was this incredible kind of like uh, decision to go to Portugal and to to work in, in Europe uh, um, at an academy at Sun Live? Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, what was the process? And then, you know, what does that mean for your coaching? Because now you're coaching um, European basketball. Yeah, so uh, we actually, so what Sun Life is, it's it's like a, it's a hotel. It's, it's a sports hotel. Um, so it's kind of in a, in a small town in Portugal. It's this hotel that's surrounded by all, all these great sports facilities. Um, and they host like a bunch of events and tournaments and, and academies and things like that. So uh, we'd actually been there with, with the GB20s. 
um, and Mark Lloyd, who was the team manager of the 20s, got speaking with the owner of, owner of Sun Life, uh, and they kind of came up with the idea to start a basketball academy. They already had a, a really successful football academy, which they were running in partnership with ProDirect. So, yeah, so Mark Lloyd kind of came up with this idea to run the academy, um, but obviously couldn't, couldn't go out there to coach himself. Um, so he, he asked me if I would want to go. Um, you know, originally the, the idea was for me to coach uh, the partner club as well, which was a, a men's team, which at the time was playing in, in the Portuguese second division and also to, to coach the academy and, and kind of get some, hopefully some young British talent over there, kind of expose them to European basketball and then help to help them progress on. Um, yeah, unfortunately, um, had a bit of an eye opener to professional basketball and, and found out, uh, as we spoke about before, found out kind of a month before going out to Portugal that I wouldn't be coaching uh, coaching the men's team and I was just going to be coaching the academy uh, and that was yeah that was kind of a blow for me because that was that was my main incentive to go um, I think there was you know obviously within within the riders you know Mark was doing a great job with Loughborough and Rob was doing an outstanding job with the riders so there was nowhere for me to really go oh, um, and my aspiration I thought the next step for me in my coaching was you know I want to be a national team head coach and I want to coach um, but I think before I do that I need to be the head coach for senior men's team um, so at, at the time I was like, okay, I'm going to go to Portugal, coach the senior men's team, be a professional coach. And that was kind of what really excited me. Um, you know, obviously that didn't come to fruition, but I, you know, I decided to, to roll with the academy as well. The, the academy setup was really good. Um, you know, obviously the players that, that we brought in would stay in the hotel where they have, you know, three meals a day, like buffet, like good food, the swimming pool, and then like 24 seven access to the gym. So, you know, during the daytime, we would we would do like our academy work. So kind of individual sessions, strength and conditioning. And then in the evening, they would practice with with the partner club and then play with them on the weekend also. Great. Um, are you when you went out there, uh, obviously you started watching, you know, the Portuguese league and the style of basketball, European style of basketball, mm -hmm. somewhat similar to, you know, the Spanish game. Yeah. Um, you know, what, what did that change your philosophy? Did you change the way you teach? Um, or were you just, you know, like, I know I'm going to just be myself and, and continue to coach like you had been um, at Charmwood? Yeah, I, I would say kind of, yeah, it was definitely exposed me to different things. I wouldn't say I, I made huge changes. Um, obviously, the game the game there is a little more tactical. Um, it's kind of played played at a different rhythm, kind of a more uh, free-flowing rhythm. You know, the guys play from a young age, so they kind of, you know, do things a bit more instinctively than, than a lot of our players. Um, but, yeah, I think one big thing, I had a really good assistant um, at the academy who, who would do a lot of the skill development. So I think... That's probably where I where I changed the most. Um, I think my kind of the, a lot of the skill development I was doing to that stage was like pretty linear. So it's kind of like you know build the skills up step by step. Um, you know one on o, then one v one, and then two v one, two v two if it's appropriate, and so on. Um, whereas my assistant Sergio, he would he had some really kind of you know thinking outside the box ideas, and you know he'd use like three balls, like use balloons and sticks, and you know before I kind of thought that stuff was a bit gimmicky, and and I think you know sometimes it can be a bit gimmicky. But the way he was incorporating it kind of made sense. Um, and he was also very good at kind of manipulating the rules. So in terms of like the carry, you know, you see a lot of the European players that they look like they're carrying the ball because they have the ball in their hand for so long. Um, and then also like that was around the time that the zero step footwork was coming in as well. So he was kind of one of these guys that had studied that and kind of learned how to manipulate the rules to do different things. And, you know, so that, that I'd say my approach to skill development definitely kind of changed more so than my approach to how how I think the game should be played.
Mm, interesting. Okay. Um, that's great. And then, you know, obviously, um, COVID has changed everything. Um, you know, we'll talk a little bit about what you're going to be doing um, in, you know, from a coaching standpoint soon, but um, you came back, you start the, the student athlete network, talk, talk mm -hmm. to me a little bit about that and explain to us the whole philosophy behind um, that organization. Yeah, so that's um, it's myself and Lloyd Gardner that run Student Athlete Network. Um, primarily what it is, is we're like a, an educational recruitment agent for, for British universities. So we recruit um, international student athletes, mainly, mainly from America, to come to the UK to get a master's and, and continue playing their sport, obviously, because they're, you know, they're, once their eligibility is done, it's done. So they kind of come to the UK, get a, you know, a, cheap, a cheaper master's and, and continue playing their sport. Um, but then obviously one thing we also do is we look to try and provide opportunities for British kids kind of moving on. I think that's something that we, we both enjoy doing from our time as academy coaches. Um, so when we were in Portugal, we actually were able to get some Erasmus funding. So we had guys out there on scholarship. Um, then now we now have three guys, two guys from Maisco and one guy from Itchen. They're out at FSU in Iceland with, with Chris Caird. Um, so yeah, that's kind of Erasmus funded through Student Athlete Network. Um, and then also we we help British kids that, that want to go to the States. So a lot of the kids that we used to coach kind of help them move on and and kind of working with a select few players this year. Obviously, this year it's tough with COVID and, you know, recruitment's strange because, um, you know, all the guys that are there now can go back, all the seniors can go back. So uh, the coaches kind of don't know if they will or they won't. So they don't know what type of players they need this year. It's really tough. But, yeah, we're kind of offering that, that service. Um, and we're actually in the process hopefully in the next week or two um of releasing like an online educational course for kids that want to go to the states you know for kids for parents for for coaches um obviously it's a it's a hotly debated topic at the moment within within basketball in the uk kids going to the states so yeah we've we spent the last couple of months kind of producing an online course which um you know covers the whole process in detail and will hopefully be you know of a lot of value to to players coaches and parents um you know it's been a debate for almost all my coaching career yeah. <laughs> but um you know i won't have a, a bad word said about sending um sending young people to to america regardless of whether it's for the pure um basketball experience or it's for a life experience because um yeah you know they're both um have you know huge benefits to to a young person um mm -hmm. what i am impressed by what you know uh, you and lloyd are doing and i do know both of you well enough to know that um, you you have real expertise in this area is that you know you're giving um the parents um something you know uh, a real uh, it's an, an, an outlet to potentially ask you know lots sometimes very you know some simple questions and sometimes some complex yeah. questions and i think that yeah. that's a very very good service um what i would like to see more um, and I hope that uh, the young coaches that are listening to this will take heed and of my advice, but is that, you know, other coaches from even from ABL academies who don't have as much experience as you two um, with this situation would be able to get in contact with you because there are too many situations where, you know, um, young coaches in this country just, you know, think that they know better um, mm -hmm. without actually even asking any, any questions or advice um, yeah. from someone that's got some real expertise. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Always happy to help. Great. Um, 
let's I'm going to come back to where you are at the moment um, just at the end but um, let's just change slightly tact you know you've gone you've you've had this uh, you've had a great journey you you know it's far from over it's you've got lots of you know lots to do now but let's talk about um, your thoughts on on British coaching and you know this this word of the, the fraternity and stuff I mean mm-hmm. what what's your thoughts of where we are now as, as British basketball coaches yeah I mean I think I think there is a fraternity um, I think like I mentioned before there's um, a lot of, a lot of coaching jobs um, in the UK because of you know the academies and the universities you know the education element brings a lot of, of money and, and jobs into the sport. You know, are they professional coaching jobs? Probably not many of them. Um, but that's something that they don't have in mainland Europe. Like, and that's something that we can really capitalize on. Um, what, what we have a lack of in the UK is uh, facilities, obviously, and access to facilities, but it's clubs. You know, we don't have clubs. Without clubs, you're not going to have coaches. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, we're kind of quite, quite divided. Like, you know, people will go and start their own little thing here and there. Whereas obviously in Europe, it's, you know, the, the council has a gym, which they give to the local club. And that's where you go if you want to play basketball. Whereas in England, it's kind of a little more entrepreneurial and people can go and set up their own things. And, it, it, you know, I think we need more clubs, which we'll probably get into in a sec. Um, yeah, but I think for me, there's a lot of jobs in kind of, um, you know, in education, which can be paired with, with jobs with clubs, you know, in EABL and Division One and so on and so forth. Um, but I think there's, there's a bit of a glass ceiling for the BBL. Mm. Um, I think, you know, and, and no disrespect to any of the coaches in the BBL, you know, some fantastic coaches like Rob and so on. Um, but I think that the BBL owners need to be a little more ambitious when they're, when they're looking at who they employ as coaches. You know, I don't think, you know, they need to put more value on the role of the coach. I mean, when, when Leicester first started winning and being good, it wasn't because they had a huge budget. It was because they had a good coach. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think, I think that the BBL clubs need to, you know, like, how Mark Stutel has to coach in the fourth division in our country as the head coach of our national team is crazy. Yeah. He, you know, that guy should be in the BBL. You know, Lloyd Gardner should be That's coaching true. the BBL. You know, he, you know, he did a fantastic job when he was with the Royals. So, you know, I don't think people appreciate how well he did with that team. You know, often, you know, didn't have many guys. I know they had issues with practice and so on and so forth. So, you know, did an incredible job with them. You know, Solent Kestrels have just won 50 games in a row in D1 uh, and how many BBL teams are calling Matt Guyman? I, I don't know, Man. you know, so well, I mean, yeah, it's the same as, uh, like I said about junior Williams as well, before Lloyd got to the Royals. I mean, junior had done an mm-hmm. incredible job with them as well. And, um, he mm-hmm. won a trophy in his first year and, um, he's no longer involved in, you know, in professional basketball. Um, and it's simply yeah. down to the problem, we've always had which is um you know the the there isn't an urgency to to win and there is no no coaching turnover um i mean and and there are a number of reasons for that but you know there's no uh, there's no hiring to firing culture in our country um and there's a there's there's the coaches that are there are have really long long tenured and and we you know as well as i do there are there are times in europe that if you can go on a four four game losing streak you'll be fired um so yeah it's a it's a tough one but um and you are absolutely right i mean there's just no 
coaching movement in those type of jobs. Um, and of course, you know, there's no professionalism in, in EBL one either. So, you know, it's a, it's a really, really tough situation, um, you know, to, to how that, you know, we could perpetuate um, a better system for professional coaching in this country. So really good yeah. point there, there, Josh, really good point. Um, really quickly, um, thoughts on coach education in, in the UK. Um, you said that you obviously went through your level, you know, one, two, and three, basically with, with yeah. Collins and, and a little yeah. bit with Coach Dunning. Um, what, what's your thoughts? Have you been um, approached about, you know, being involved in coach education in this country? No. Um, yeah, I think just quickly, that, that's a big thing. You know, we need to make sure that we have the right people delivering the coaching courses. Um, you know, I was lucky to have I had John for my level one and two and, and John and Coach Dunning for my level three. So I was lucky, but you know, some of the people that deliver our coaching courses in this country, you know, they're not involved in the game at any level. You know, we don't have our best coaches should be, you know, our national team coach, our best coach in the country should be the ones coaching the next generation of coaches. Um, I think we desperately need the BCA back. Um, I think, you know, hopefully that, I know there's been talks, but hopefully that will, will come about soon. You know, I can probably count on one hand the amount of, the amount of clinics, worthwhile clinics that have been in, in the UK since I've been coaching. Um, you know, I was I was one of the guinea pigs for the clinic at Moulton when uh, Johan Plaza came. I don't know if you were there, probably. Yeah. Yeah. So I was one of one of the guinea one of the players. Uh, I think Dunning gave us a free pair of Nike shoes for giving up our weekend. Um, so yeah, that was that was a great experience um, for me as a player. And obviously, you know, I'd love to see that type of thing. And you know, I understand that. I think the coaching qualifications as well as as well as we need to make sure we have the right people delivering them. Um, they probably need to be a little little more rigorous. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a level three coach when I went to Portugal and they kind of converted what, what was on it. They only made me a level two. So, wow. which, yeah, which shows that even, you know, with national team experience and so on, they said, you know, our level three only equates to, to their level two. Mm. Um, I, I understand the argument of if you make the coaching qualification too difficult, you don't have enough coaches and you don't get enough kids playing. I think we probably need some type of activator award. I don't know if we have one, maybe we do you know, some type of activate reward for people that just want to coach like a community and recreational level and get kids involved in the game. Absolutely. But then for people that want to coach national league and especially coaching professionally, like those coaching qualifications need to be more rigorous. Okay. Really good. Um, what now is the future for, 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 for you as a coach? Um, <laughs> you know, you talked to me a little bit offline um, about what you're involved with now. What, what's, your, what's your aspirations and what, what, what's the short term looking like? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I'm, I'm back in Milton Keynes now, obviously forced, forced home by COVID. Um, and as I mentioned, when I, was, when I was a kid growing up here, you know, the Lions were in town, basketball was really big. There was a lot of stuff going on. Um, but when the Lions left, unfortunately, that kind of died a little bit. So, you know, Mike New is stuck around and is doing stuff. Um, Nigel is now working in a different school, you know, producing some players every year. Um, but there's just not enough kind of going on. So I've kind of always had the aspiration to, to move home to Milton Keynes and to, to start my own club. Because I think it's, it's an area with huge potential. You know, it's, you know, it's a growing city, you know, population of almost 300,000. And, and there's no basketball, limited basketball here and not much on the outskirts either. So, yeah, I'm kind of, I've teamed up with a guy who's, um, you know, a retired businessman who has uh, built a really good community club. There are about 350 kids. Um, playing every week and you know the club's all very well organized and we're in this process now of trying to build that club um 
So we we entered four national league teams this year, under 12, under 16, under 12, under 14, under 16, under 18 boys. Mm. Um, unfortunately, the season obviously got canned. So, you know, we couldn't play, but, you know, we plan to re-enter those teams next year. Also to enter a men's team, we're looking to enter a girls team, probably under 14s. So yeah, just, you know, we're going to start a schools program, you know, really try to get a big, a big player base at a young age and, um, yeah, and build the club from the ground up, you know, very much, you know, a bottom up philosophy, trying to, you know, get basketball back in, ingrained in Milton Keynes. Awesome. Awesome. Three quick questions uh, before mm-hmm. we go. Um, favorite all-time basketball coach? Um, I'm going to say Bill Self, Kansas. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah awesome. Always. I actually saw them play live last year at the at the Maui Invitational in uh, in Hawaii. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great trip. Uh, I wish, yeah. I, wish yeah, I was yeah. there for that one. That's a great. Yeah. Uh, favorite go go to saying or statement. Mm. Uh, progress over perfection. Oh, I like it. I like that. Progress. Yeah, you can steal over that perfection. one, Tony. Yeah, I will steal that. That's <laughs> an awesome one. Um, and then favorite uh, drill. Four v four cutthroat, the Mark Dunning classic. Oh, yeah, Mark Dunning classic. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I use it. I, I'm I'm now made that a little bit different, but I I stole okay. the one off of. Uh, uh, Greg Popovich at, um, at San Antonio because he's actually got the cutthroat, but it's 4v4v4, but that's great stuff. Yeah, actually. yeah. So 4v4v4 yeah. with the synergizing and the team yeah. coming in from the baseline. Yeah, yeah it's my, right. favorite, my favorite drill as a player and my favorite drill as a coach. Yeah, awesome. Great stuff. Yeah. Um, coach, listen, I really appreciate your time. Uh, you know, I think that um, as with most of the talented younger coaches, I mean, this is just really a, a mid-stage journey. And um, I'm pretty certain that in the future, you're going to have, um, you know, much more success. And I hope to see you um, back on the front line of, you know, of elite coaching, you know, much, much sooner than um, rather than later. That's for sure. For sure. But I really appreciate you being on the timeout coaching uh, uh for today yeah awesome thanks for having me tony and, and keep up the good work these are these are great thanks for listening to another episode of time out you can now find all of our episodes on itunes and spotify so please like subscribe and let us know who you'd like to hear from in a future episode